if the waves literally swell and get big enough to threaten a mountain, that is if those, those massive formations of rock, thousands of feet tall, are somehow and suddenly threatened by waves. Now, when you, when you go down to East Cliff or West Cliff, like, like when there's a storm, like the ones that we just had, or just when the waves are big, you can feel, right, you can feel the impact of those waves. It hits you in the chest. And the water's spraying up, and you can hear that power. And again, you can feel that power. And I, I don't really know. I don't know a lot about the ocean. But w those are maybe 10-foot waves. right? They're big, but they're not that big. Now think about mountain-sized waves, the kind of waves that verse 3 make mountains tremble at their swelling. Waves 200 or 300 times bigger than what we would usually consider a big wave. So the summit of Highway 17 is at 1,809 feet. I thought it was taller. I always thought it was 3,000 feet, but I, I've been corrected. So picture that you're driving over Highway 17. And for dramatic effect in this story, you're going southbound. So you're going from San Jose to Scotts Valley or Santa Cruz. Okay? And you're, you're driving, and you're at the summit, and you look out the right window of your car, right passenger window, and what you see off in the distance, let's say a half mile away, is a wave that's two times bigger than the summit. You're here. The wave is here. You see that coming. And it's about to take out not only everything on the mountain, including you, but it's also going to come and shake the foundations of that mountain itself. That is the kind of cataclysm that the psalmist is picturing here. The mountains tremble at the swelling of the ocean. Much of the time we think about an earthquake being caused by a tsunami. I'm sorry, a tsunami being caused by an earthquake. This is an earthquake being caused by a tsunami. Now, whether this is a hypothetical scenario or something that's being recounted from the past in an illustrative form, the fact and principle remains from this picture. And, and the principle is this. God is with us in the terrifying cataclysm. Isn't that what it says in verse 2? The reason that we should not fear in the cataclysm is that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God had proven this fact, this fact of him being the refuge and strength of his people in the past, in the cataclysms, plural, that they underwent in Egypt, or at least that they observed in Egypt. In all of the manifestations of, of his judgment in the plagues, he preserved his people. He preserved them when the river turned to blood. He preserved them when hail rained down from heaven. He preserved them through several other cataclysms. And ultimately, 
He preserved them when the, the destroyer came to destroy the firstborn. And when that Egyptian society was literally disintegrating before the power of the only true and living God, his people were unaffected. And further, when they entered the promised land, all of the destruction that went up around them, as long as they hid themselves in him, all that destruction they were spared from. It was Jericho that came crashing down and not the camp of the people of God. He spared his people in Egypt. He spared them as they entered Canaan. And now he's pictured here again by the psalmist as the one who preserves and spares his people, though the entire created order should dissolve. He's like an indestructible bunker that the people could enter into and that we can enter into. A bunker that shields us from the massive waves and the trembling mountains of life regardless of the scope and scale. And when you're in a truly indestructible refuge, a truly indestructible bunker. You don't have a legitimate reason to fear, no matter what's going on outside. It's indestructible. So you might have, you might have fearful thoughts like, there's no way that this bunker can hold when a mountain falls on it, or there's no way that this bunker can withstand that cloud-scraping tsunami coming at me in my life. But then the mountain falls on it, and you're fine. And the bunker holds up. Or the wave crashes on it, and nothing truly, ultimately happens. There's no ultimate reason to fear because the bunker holds up. Now we've likely all experienced that. Fear at impending circumstances, we see something coming at us, that wave coming at us, only to have all of our fears resolved as we saw God act providentially or as we meditated on the character and promises of our indestructible bunker. And we saw those things resolve even as we remained in the cataclysm because there was someone who was more near than the cataclysm itself. He is our near and present help, our indestructible bunker, our ever-present help in trouble. He's been here before, and he's shielded his people before countless times. And as we saw some weeks ago in Romans 8, he promises to be a safe place for his people, a bunker for his people, a refuge for his people, no matter what comes. 
danger, distress, nakedness, famine, peril, sword. It's totally comprehensive protection. He preserves us through us all, through it all. Opposition, persecution, poverty. In every inward and outward trial, he preserves his people since his people are hidden and found in his love, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, how do we have that safety and guarantee of his love? How do we have that safety and guarantee of protection in the midst of a cataclysm? It's because Christ himself has taken the cataclysm of God's wrath so that no cataclysm can ever truly and ultimately threaten us. He's fulfilled the covenant from all eternity to redeem a people for himself. And having redeemed us, having defeated sin and death and hell and Satan, he won't let anything in the created order get between him and his people. Even in those extreme cases when the mountains seem to shake and the tsunamis seem to come rushing at us. In Christ Jesus, we have an ever-present help, a mighty fortress and refuge in every circumstance. So that was the first movement, God in the cataclysm. Second movement, verses 4 to 7, things change. If, if verses 1 to 3 was heavy metal, the beginning of this next scene, we hear a nice pleasant creek, and we might hear a symphony in the background. And this is God in his habitation. And I should say also, the music doesn't stay the same throughout this scene. It's going to change a bit. So the, the psalmist takes us from a picture of calamity to a picture of peace and pleasantness. He's taken us from those trembling mountains and that encroaching sea with the giant waves to a river, a river that brings gladness to the city of God, a river whose streams make glad the city of God, to God's habitation where he is in Jerusalem. This image of the river, according to Barnes, represents happiness, abundance, peace, and joy. And Barnes goes on to say that in its more divided manifestations, as it breaks down into streams, he says that the flowing river of divine mercy and goodness is conveyed to each home and heart, producing peace, calmness, joy, while the world around is full of commotion and trouble producing peace, calmness, joy, while the world around is full of commotion and trouble. And those, those harm, those homes and hearts to which the divine mercy and goodness is given, 
Those homes and hearts are within the city, within God's habitation. Those who dwelt in Jerusalem and depended on the living God could be confident that they would receive mercy and peace from the God of their salvation regardless of what was going on outside of those walls. And that river of grace still flows for his people. The streams of mercy towards us flow forever in Christ Jesus. His grace knows no end, even though our lives or the world outside or both are filled with cataclysm and calamity. That river of peace and mercy never runs dry, but will be found in the coming ages to continue on and continue to result in the praise of his glorious grace. Now, God's habitation in the time in which this song was written, as I mentioned, is perhaps quite obviously Jerusalem. He had established the city as the center of life and worship for his people, and his presence literally lived there in the temple. If God was within the city, within the temple, there was nothing for the people to fear. Verse 5, she, that is referring to the city, she wouldn't be moved because God was in the midst of her. And it's also said here that God will help her early. So he helps her, he helps Jerusalem, he helps the people of God at a particular time. I think Albert Barnes is insightful here when he, he speaks of a, a potential option for what may have occasioned this psalm. And he uses that phrase as part of the argument, that, that phrase, help her early, or God will help her when morning dawns. He thinks that the helping at dawn points to the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians at the time of Hezekiah. Now, some of you remember how dire things looked in that circumstances, but if you don't remember, I'm going to run through this for us. They were surrounded and destruction was impending and imminent. And there was just no way out. This powerful empire was coming at them at full force. You could say that the nations were raging, like in verse 6. And there's that scene, that great showdown of sorts in 2 Kings 19, where Rabshakeh, the spokesperson, the spokesman for the king of Assyria, comes and taunts and threatens the people of Jerusalem about their impending doom. And he says, he says this, Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered 
their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So in other words, don't trust the Lord, give up, because he's just like every other false god, and he can't do anything. Next, Hezekiah, in response to that, in response to that mocking, sent by Sennacherib through the mouth of Rabshakeh. So Hezekiah, for any faults that he might have had, goes and he prays this majestic prayer. 2 Kings 19, 15 to 19. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the, the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. It's a majestic prayer, and how, how did God answer it? Probably one of the most definitive verses in a very definitive book, the scriptures, a sudden deliverance. God helped her early. God helped Jerusalem early. God helped his people at the right time. And what, what did that look like? 2 Kings 19.35. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. His answer was, I'm God. I'm my people's refuge and strength, and I'm not like those other gods. I'm real. I'm the protector of my city. I'm the protector of my people. And as long as I'm in my habitation, I will help them. And he helped her to vindicate his own glory. You saw in Hezekiah's prayer that he viewed what Rabshakeh had said as an attempt to mock the living God and so God definitively answered that mocking from the most powerful king on the earth. Nothing can stay his hand. And by doing that, he protected his people. And now, 
He's bought the church with his own blood. He's chosen to make for himself a habitation, a dwelling from every people, tribe, and tongue, a dwelling place for the Spirit. And that's us. We are his house, his dwelling place, by the grace of the new covenant. We are his holy nation, contained within the walls of his providence and protection. And he helps us early. He helps us when morning dawns. He helps us at the right time to ultimately preserve us, to do us good in the long term. He helps his church and each one of us individually at the right time in order to preserve us from any ultimate evil and to fulfill all of his promises to us. He even turns assaults against the church on their head to sanctify and benefit his people and to glorify himself. Isn't that what we saw in, in the book of Acts when, when Judea, when in Judea there was a great persecution that arose? There was a raging against the church. And all that ended up doing was galvanizing the church, dispersing the people, and sending the word abroad to grow that same fledgling church. And he subverts the plans of the enemy of our souls in a similar way by using all that comes against us individually for our sanctification and for his glory. Nothing can thwart God's plans and purposes for his church, for his habitation, for the spiritual temple that he's building for himself, for his own glory. Now, it should give us great confidence that no matter what comes against the church, no matter what opposition may come, she shall not be moved. As it's said by Jesus, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Jesus takes it even further than saying, the church is never going to be destroyed. He says, church, you're going to go out and you're going to assail the kingdom of darkness by gospel proclamation. And you're going to tear down those walls. And obviously for us to do that, he must preserve the church and he will preserve the church. Regardless of what opposition comes in the form of governments, domestic or foreign, personal vengeance, false religions, there's nothing that will ultimately ever move the church because God himself is in the midst. Now, what should that fact do? What should the preserving of the church, what should God being in the midst of his habitation, the church, what should that do in each of our lives? One of the things that it should do is it should energize us to fulfill what we personally need to fulfill within the church. We can have great confidence that when we do what we do, when we pour out our lives, our gifts, our energy, and our time 
in the service of building up the church. We're giving up all those things. We're yielding up all of those things for the only thing that will ultimately last. It's the only thing that will withstand the changing circumstances of life in this world. And so we, like Luther, can labor faithfully in whatever situation we find ourselves because God is the one who upholds the church, his habitation. Now, moving through this scene, I mentioned that the music was going to change. We had a, a symphony playing, and it was peaceful, and there was that sound of that creek flowing through. But now, the psalmist pans out outside the city, and we're looking out at the nations. And we see a contrast, whereas there was that peace and pleasantness inside the city, the city which was fed with the mercy and goodness and grace of God. Outside, people were shrieking and banging garbage can lids and making a racket. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. It's the absurdity of unbelief. It's the absurdity of rebellion against God. It's the absurdity of opposing God and his purposes. And ultimately, what does God do when this kind of opposition comes? What does it say in the text? All of this is going on outside the walls, but God doesn't ultimately remain still. He doesn't remain static. He acts at the proper time, like when he slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in one night by his angel, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Almighty One who still helps us today. When God annihilated at least part of the Assyrian army, that 185,000, we could say that it was like him uttering his voice and melting the earth in verse 6. The clamoring of the nations that seems so turbulent is silenced in a moment. This is a testimony to the omnipotence of God to reverse any situation, and it's also, as we'll see in a moment, a harbinger of the things to come. It's a preview. The psalmist follows the summary of the Lord's action on behalf of his people, quieting the clamoring outside the city with a summary of who the Lord is for his people. And that's in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And he's given that title, the Lord of hosts, the Lord who commands 10,000 angels. He's the one who commands a host far greater than all of the combined clamoring nations with beings far more powerful than human beings, holy angels, cherubim and seraphim. And this is another way that the psalmist is elevating our view of God. He's not just the commander of Israel. He's not just the commander of the church, Israel in the past, the church now. He's the commander of all the heavenly host. He's the commander of 
10,000, thousand beings that we would be tempted to worship, like so many have been, we'd be tempted to worship if we saw them. And secondly, in verse 7, he's described as our fortress. He's not only the one who commands the army to go forward from the walls of the city, he himself is the stronghold with the high walls. He's the place in which we hide. We hide in the one who is immovable, unchangeable, always sovereign. And as, as we saw earlier, the one who is our cataclysm, refuge. Now we move into the, the last scene in verses 8 to 11. So the first scene, God in the cataclysm. The second scene was God in his habitation. God in his habitation. And then this last scene is God in his glory. And it starts with that phrase, come, behold the works of the Lord. In other words, pay attention. Look, look out into the future. Derek Kidner has some, some great insight about the use of that word, behold, as it's used to open up things in the final scene. He says, this is a vision of things finally to come although the victories of the present are a foretaste of them. The word for behold is generally used for seeing with the inward eye as a seer, S-E-E-R, or prophet sees. So seeing off into the future. Behold, look out there, look into the future. So the psalmist is looking forward. And we're called to look forward as well, but we can look forward with even more clarity than he had. The psalmist, again, says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. What is it that happens in that future as we look out? Again, continuing in verse 8, what happens is desolations, are desolations, judgment, cataclysm. But this time, the cataclysm is enacted on all of God's enemies. That word for desolations there in verse 8 means something like a horrific, atrocious event. It's the same word that was used as a description in Joshua 8 when Joshua and the people of Israel went and burned up the city of Ai. Joshua and the people came in and enacted an eschatological judgment of sorts on that city, and it says this, Joshua 8.28. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heat forever, a desolation until this day. And this is what we see the Lord doing here to the whole earth in the future as we behold. In the vision, he brings desolations, plural, to that entire globe, to the entire globe. So the psalmist is saying, come and see the enemies of God and how the Lord will conquer like the Israelites conquered and burned Ai. 
And what's the net effect? What is, what is the result of these desolations? What did they accomplish? Verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. The Lord of hosts, the mighty fortress, the God of Jacob, will literally enact the war to end all wars. He'll wage a warfare that brings about complete peace. All of the enemies of God will be disarmed with their weapons of war and their engines of war dismantled and destroyed. Again, all godless rulers, all godless governments, foreign and domestic, will be put to nothing before the mighty one of Israel. The clamoring of the nations, the nations raging, will be hushed one day. So Christian, do not fear. The clamoring of the nations will be hushed. And when the nations have been finally quieted down, as we look into the future, and all of that clamoring ceases, all of that activity ceases, or rather, to make all of that activity cease, we hear God speak. In verse 6, we saw that he uttered his voice and the earth melted. Now we see what he might have said exactly. He says, be still, or cease striving. Now, what exactly does that mean? If you're like me, you've probably read this a hundred times and thought about it in one way, and I'm going to try to change your mind today. So when I, when I would read this psalm, I would think, okay, this means, Ian, be still. Be still, my people. Though the cataclysm is all around, I'm God. Be at peace. And that's, that's a biblical thought. That's a good thing to think. But if we look at the context, it's actually best to take this as a rebuke to the world outside of God's habitation, to those nations raging, to the kingdoms that are tottering. Kidner's insightful here. He says, be still is not in the first place a comfort to the harassed, to us, but a rebuke to a restless and turbulent world, quiet or leave off. Now notice, Kidner says that this is not in the first place a comfort for the harassed. It's not the primary intention of what's going on here. It's God speaking to the nations. But I think in the second place, this is a great comfort to us, a great comfort to God's people who are harassed with a variety of trials, a variety of cataclysms, a variety of fears. And here's why. 
It's because when God speaks these words to these enemies, when in the future he will speak these words to his enemies, when he sums up all things at the end of the ages, it'll be as though he says, be still, enemies of the church, and there will be no more persecution or opposition left. Christian, you have nothing to fear. It'll be as though he says, Be still, Satan! And Satan, in all of his raging, in all of his roaring, will lie crushed beneath our feet. He'll say, Be still, tribulation, distress, peril. And all of the despair, all of the disease and sickness, all of the struggle and loss will be entirely over. And ultimately, he'll say, be still, death, and will be raised victoriously. His power to speak and bring desolations upon all that would bring desolation to us is the comfort of his people. And this is for his glory. God says in the prophetic vision, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is God in his glory. God has an ultimate and an incomparable commitment to his own glory. And that is actually great news for us. It's great news because the way that he's decided to get glory is not only through bringing desolations, not only through decimating judgment, but also... He's decided to exalt himself in the earth by rescuing a remnant of people to hide in the sun. And we'll hide in him from the final cataclysm and desolation of eternal judgment. <clears throat> Excuse me. God's glory is primary, first and foremost, in verse 10. This verse has almost nothing to do with us. It's a declaration of God exalting God. I'm going to do this. I have a commitment to my own glory. But that commitment also entails the good of his people. In the divine council in eternity past, when God decided within himself how history would unfold, he decided to oversee and plan and allow an unfolding narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And we know that God is most glorified in this plan because God is so committed to his own exaltation and in his omnipotent wisdom, there's nothing that would stand in the way of him enacting this plan. Isn't that what he says? Not, not I'm, I might be exalted in the earth, I will be exalted in the earth. 
He's committed to his own glory, and he will accomplish this. And again, amazingly, that commitment to his glory doesn't mean that he speaks and just destroys everyone. That's what we deserve, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't do that. It doesn't mean that when Christ comes back with robes dipped in blood, riding a white horse, with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords emblazoned on his thigh, when he comes back like that as a destroying judge in flaming fire, like when he destroyed the Assyrians, he's not going to do that comprehensively. And that's amazingly good news. He set in motion a plan that entailed glorifying himself, not by destroying all, but glorifying himself also by showing demerited favor, showing grace to some, to show forth who he is completely, to exalt himself, to show forth his glory. And so, in light of these things, to any who may be sitting here and listening, who have not called upon the name of the Lord of hosts, the one who will exalt himself, I make this appeal. You must trust in the one who is the only shelter from the final cataclysm from that great day when he will descend from heaven with a shout, when he will melt the earth, and when he'll make all of the deeds of the earth to be exposed and judge each man according to his works. Turn to Christ, the only shelter from the cataclysm of final judgment. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. We don't know when the cataclysm of final judgment will come, when Christ will return, when he'll come back as that judge in flaming fire. But we do know that terror will come upon the earth. And so, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And so I would persuade you today, be reconciled to God. He descends and consumes with flaming fire or shelters from the flaming fire of judgment. There are only those two ways. And Christian, hear the final verse. Once again, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's a repeated refrain. The first appearance of this line in the psalm was a declaration. Now, because of the outcome of the future vision, God saying, be still. God saying, I will exalt myself. God making desolations upon the earth. Because of that outcome, this is a triumphant shout. When you know that your God has all 
of the power to bring desolations like this upon the earth. You can take courage in life's cataclysms. You, with God as your ever-present help in trouble, can take heart no matter what that fear is that assails your soul. When you know that the self-glorification of God is his absolute commitment and that you and your destiny, your blessing, is guaranteed by that commitment to God's self-exaltation, you can move courageously through the cataclysms of life. You can bear the cataclysms of life for his glory because you can have certainty that he hides and protects you. You can say with Luther, no matter what comes, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, the worst thing could happen, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Everything is going to be okay. Because of the truth of our glorious cataclysm refuge, because of his power and his grace, we can bear up under crosses and also proclaim with vigor in our weakness the glory and excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to be people who dwell within the safety of his habitation. And we can do this because no matter what comes, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time, the ways that you sustained us, the ways that you maybe used your word to illumine something new, to strengthen and help and give hope to your people. So I pray, Father, that this would equip us in that next trial, that it would help us in the, the current trial, that we would take great heart and hope in the fact that you are in the process of summing up all things in the sun, that this life is but a breath, that our trials are but a breath. But your kingdom stands forever. And so, Father, help us to pour out our lives for the same purpose which you work all things in history. Help us to pour out our lives in the exaltation of the King. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.